Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and co-host, Patricia Glover-Howard. Hi, Patricia. Good evening, Bernice. How are you this tonight? Oh, looking forward to the show, I can tell you that. Well, everyone, Patricia will monitor the chat room and summarize your comments. Well, a special welcome to the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through Blog Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show is about a new book entitled The Cooking Gene, A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South by Michael W. Twitty. Michael Twitty is a noted culinary and cultural historian and the creator of Afro-Culinaria, the first blog devoted to African-American historic food ways and their legacies. Michael is a Smith Fellow with the Southern Food Ways Alliance, TED Fellow and Speaker, and the first revolutionary in residence at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. So let me give a warm welcome to Michael Twitty, to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Michael. Hi, thank you so much. Thank you to both of you for having me. Just a pleasure, Michael. And I should say, you know, welcome back, because, Michael, you were (laughs) a guest on this show on August 15, 2013. Do you remember that? That's right. That's right. I was in North Carolina during that interview. That's right, and we discussed African-American foodways and that open letter you wrote to Paula Dean. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that was back in the day, huh? <laughs> yes. Well, yes, obviously, yes. a lot has happened since that show. So let's start at your beginning. And, you know, we talk a lot about telling our stories and writing books. So when did you first consider exploring, you know, writing a book? Oh, when I was little. 
So that's all I ever wanted to do was write a book. All I ever wanted to do was write a book. When I was a little boy, I told my mother and father, I said I wanted to be um, a preacher. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a teacher and a chef. Wow. As a little boy. As a little boy. This has always been my thing. I heard you say preacher. Yep. (laughs) Have you hit that yet? Um, I'm, hey, I'm, I was a veteran Hebrew school teacher, so, you know, that's that's one, that's like four toes out of ten into being a rabbi, so I'm good. Okay, all right. So let's start with, I, I just have one question I want to ask you. Now, you mentioned in your book that southern food is integral to the American culinary tradition, yet the question of who owns it is one of the most provocative touch points in our ongoing struggle with race. So please expand on this statement for us. Well, one of the bottom lines is that, um, and I want to I want to make sure we have our genealogical focus is that, um, you know, it's to the it's to the advantage of larger systems based in white supremacy that we don't acknowledge the individual lives of people of color and their role and their agency in transforming American life because then we become one, you know, kind of uh, amorphous mass. We're not, you know, there's, we, you know, you have to, to give legal testimony, you have to, you know, be specific. You have to tell a certain mm-hmm. truth. And for me, that means about bearing witness. And in terms of Southern food, which is a multi-billion dollar industry, um, we have to really focus on, you know, who who created that, who made it work, who pulled all the different pieces from different cultures together, and that really happened in the hands of cooks of color, um, specifically African descent. And um, we don't have the whole southern the whole story of southern food is not us, but we are so the story of southern food cannot be told without us. And so the cooking gene um, was my response to this idea that. You know, a lot of articles and pieces about a cultural appropriation and ownership, but also this interest that we have in genealogy and genetics. Um, you know, if we're going to know where we come from in the continent, to what end? And my end yes. was, well, by being able to say that I have specific ancestry from this place and it was it was brought to this state or commonwealth and then it migrated, I was able to trace the story of Southern food through my family from Africa to America, from enslavement to emancipation. Um, And being able to actually lay claim to the source code. So ownership comes through owning your history, owning your narrative, but it also comes through just the plain basic thing of, hey, I know the source code now, so you can't take that away from me. And so my goal is to have every African American own their source code, and that includes our food. I like that owning your history and owning your your narrative and your source, your source code. Well, now you focus specifically on a journey through African American culinary history in the old South. Why did you choose to focus on the old South? The old South is a is a term that has traditionally blocked us out. It's a term, it's almost like the geographic version of the N-word, you know, and we don't own it. It's a term that's only used in a celebratory manner 
to describe um, the power structures of white Southerners in the past over Native people and over enslaved Africans. Um, and it that doesn't it doesn't stop at 1865, right? Mm-hmm. It it doesn't even stop until maybe 1965 or 1970. So up until the gates of my birth, the old South was an idea that existed in people's minds and souls. There's no there's no geographic boundaries of the old South. Um, it's not there are no signs saying here is the old South. The old mm-hmm. South is a state of mind, and it's a state of mind um, where Southern culture and civilization was built. But who built it? Um, and so we know who built it. But also, I want to ask the question: How did our families, how did our, how, their, how did our individual ancestors play a role in that story? And so, for me, being a culinary historian, and um, by that I mean um, I focus on studying the history of cuisine and food and food ways and how they interact with people's culture, how food impacts individual lives, how food impacts national identity, how food, you know, everything from recipes to techniques to subsistence methods to ingredients, how that plays a role in people's identity and their performance of their identity. And for me, I, you know, being a genealogist, being a historian, being a living history person, someone who interprets the past, I'm not a reenactor. Um, I'm not crazy. I'm not reenacting slavery. <laughs> Let's be real. Mm-hmm. No, living history interpreters are people who are contemporary people who may wear the clothes, do the crafts of the past, in order to teach people in the present about historic life ways of our ancestors. And for me, it was about putting myself under the microscope. And you know, I'm not a I'm not an armchair historian. I don't talk about, you know, picking cotton or dealing with tobacco or rice sugar cane without actually being able to say I did it myself. And for me, the major focus has been the cooking and the cooking yeah. in the hands of black chefs and black cooks, not all of whom were enslaved, many of whom were free people of color. And by the way, they were the best. They weren't the second best or sort of the, sort of the, the follow-up. There was a 200-year stretch where all professional cooking in America belonged to the black man and woman and nobody else. So I consider myself to be the first black um, colonial antebellum chef in in training as a, as a master chef since the Civil War. So owning that whole process, to me, is how I navigate the Old South. Well, that is very interesting. But, Michael, as I began to read your book, I was struck really by your first chapter uh, listed in the Table of Contests. Yeah. Uh, you're, you mentioned no more whistling walk for me, and I said I don't think I've ever heard that. So tell us about the <laughs> whistling walk. I, I think it would be helpful for people to understand. That's chapter number one. Right, right, and that chapter is where I actually get, I introduce the reader to what it's like to be a black interpreter on a plantation, in a plantation museum where, you know, the expectation is you're going to be a teacher. Or when I go to cook, and cook historically, I'm not cooking in jeans. I'm not cooking in a T-shirt. I'm cooking in the civilian clothes of an 18th or 19th century person. And the ritual of putting those clothes on 
and starting my day kind of in kind of solitary, you know, like chopping wood and deciding what I'm going to cook and getting the ingredients ready and picking things out of the garden and blah, 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 et cetera. Um, those are very transformative moments. You know, we don't we talk a lot about our past and reflect on it, but we we're we're very we're frightened to death of it, as Black Americans. It's horrifying to us. It should be horrifying. But you know, you as a person that? who's also Jewish, who for whom you know history is a major part of the religion, there's not one single day in the Jewish religion where the words aren't said, and we do this in remembrance of the fact that we were slaves in the land of Egypt. See what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. every single day, every single day, you're reminded you were slaves in the land of Egypt. You've come a long way, and you have a long way to go. And you have to be kind to people who are also enslaved and oppressed. And so for me, that reflection begins the minute I put on my clothes, I cut the wood, I get the food together, I start the fire, all, the, all those things, pieces. And in that chapter, you know, I talk about the politics of Southern food and the politics of being a black person living history, where you know there's not a whole lot of black folks. Mm-hmm. And so what I talk, talked about was the whistling walk. You know, when I used to go on these tours as, you know, someone who didn't do this, they would often joke about how the the walkway between the, the big house kitchen, which is usually outside the big house, and the big house where the master and missus live, they used to talk about how um, these, the slaves... The slaves. Now, hear that language already? Not yes. enslaved people. The slaves. Or most often, Bernice, they use the term the servants. Would you know they were not servants? They were not paid. This was not the American Downton Abbey. These were people who were considered three-fifths of a person. They were property. So enslaved people were, as they, they like to put it, the servants were forced, listen to that language, forced to whistle to prove they weren't stealing the food. And so people would just laugh and think it was the funniest thing in the world. And I'm dying inside, right, as a black visitor. Because yes. I know it's a joke that's being made. You know, we're tricky. We're children. You know, thank God there was slavery so we could be, you know, there's this patriarchal system over us. And I'm angry. You know, I'm frustrated. I'm bitter. I'm mad. I, I want to just, you know, and the fact that these docents and, 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 and other folks are never challenged on this stuff. But if as a black historian, I have to prove every single thing I say multiple times mm-hmm. um, just to be able to, to, to be in this. And so that chapter is called No More Whistling Walk because I, I made up a new song. There used to be a song during slavery. No more auction block for me, no more, no more. No more auction block for me, many thousands gone. And so I changed the words to no more whistling walk for me, no more, no more. No more whistling walk for me, many thousands gone. Because I wasn't taking it no more. I was going to set the record straight. I was going to let people know it's about us, it ain't about them. And we have a comment coming out of the the chat in in reaction to what you've just said. It's just coercion, surveillance, self-surveillance is insidious. And mm. so, you know, by you changing those words, you're you're changing the the dynamics. No more whistling walk for me. You know, it's about us. It's not about them. Mm-hmm. So, Michael, let's talk for a moment about your goal. 
And you mention in your book your goal is to become an authentic American chef. Tell us what this means to you and why it is important for us to understand where you are coming from. Well, I think that one of the things is the cooking gene was written for everybody, but it was particularly written with a bent towards other African Americans. And by African American, I really do mean African American. Um, I mean people who are who are black, whose ancestors have been here for a long time, most of whom came through a slave ship, or people who um, have grand, have been grandfathered into our community from other diaspora communities. Um, especially those who came to the South. Ninety percent of us came to the South. The other ten percent came through the Northeast. Um, through the slave trade. And we began to immediately diversify into a new people. Nobody is more American than a black man and a black woman. And yet, we retain our Africanness and our African identity and African culture, whether we like to admit, admit it or not. It's, it's always there. It's always been a part of us. And mm-hmm. so we have this, this, this our true double consciousness is being both part of, part of both of those worlds. And food reflects that journey. You know, we took enslavement and we took this uh, exile in America and transformed it into something no other people who's ever been enslaved in history has ever done. I mean, think about this for a moment. They have been enslaved people by empires all across the world. And nine times out of ten, what happens to them? They're forced to assimilate and they disappear. Black people in the New World took over. We took over the food, we took over the singing, we took over the music, we took over the dance, we took over sexuality, we took over religion, we took over language. We took a language that was supposedly invented by a king, put it into the mouths of the enslaved and created a poetry the king would never even dream of. And then we created out of that language a moral suasion, a language of civil rights, equality, and engagement that tested the definition of what being in a Western democracy meant. No one, no one else has that on record as their culture. We didn't just slide mm-hmm. by. We rocked it. And even the term rocking it, that's us, right? We are that's America's right. original music, classical music. We're, we're America's original cuisine, the first Creole cuisine. And by Creole, I mean a mixture of cultures, not specifically Creole as in Louisiana, was... African, Native, and European. So this is us. And so representing that small piece of that small lens of our history, because there are many, there's sports, there is religion, there is language, literature, politics. But for me, food is very important because people take it for granted. Bernice, I got so tired of people watching these shows on TV with Anthony Bourdain and Andrew Zimmer and everybody else in the world had this refined, beautiful cuisine and culture. And I couldn't, because I had no one to, to, to tell me the same thing about black Americans. Mm-hmm. And everybody else got to go back to Italy and China and France and Greece and all this ancient food heritage and these old traditions and traditions becoming new trends. And, you know, and they own their stuff. They own their stuff. And we didn't. And so I wanted to write a book that gave particularly people of African descent, but African Americans especially, a deep pride that we have a story that is just as full of grandeur and beauty 
and power and might as anybody else on earth. And guess what? Through our stripes and our triumphs, we earned it. We earned it. And, you know, as I and because I did go through your book, and, and I just picked out some, some quotes, and I think this is uh, close to what you have said to us. We Africans in the Americas have not just been adopters. We are border crossers and cultural benders. Hmm. So say more about this. Hey, we, you know, we don't just, we didn't just accept our lot. We resisted. And for me, food tells you three very important things. Our food. And keep in mind, I know I go back and forth, you know, I, I've, I've said to people that slave food and soul food ain't the same thing. Okay? But I've also okay. been very clear about this. Soul food, as we know it, as a contemporary cuisine, is the, is the, um, the memory cuisine of the great-grandchildren of the enslaved. They're looking backward towards their ancestors. They're trying to figure out who they are. And that's fine. And then mm-hmm. there's the bigger soul food, the mega, the mega soul food, which is the entire African-American vernacular culinary tradition. And what I love about that term soul food is that, you know, don't just think of it in terms of the things that people denigrate us of. Because I'm not about making black culture into a pathology, into a disease to be diagnosed. Soul, to me, especially soul food, which is a term from the 60s and 50s, which we're in started, um, is really beautiful because it, it, it's the only ethnic cuisine named after something transcendental. It's named after the bond that crosses life and death that we have with our ancestors. And so soul food is a very important part of the African-American family tree. And wherever we've gone, whatever state or region we've gone to, we make things happen. You know, we, we turn gumbo from Louisiana into Dungeness Crab Gumbo in Oakland. We take, you know, um, southern fruit from the Carolinas and add new ingredients to it in Brooklyn. You know, we go to Africa, we see how things are done there in Senegal and Ghana, and we bring it back here and we blackify it a different way. And it's just that continual improvisation and creativity, the likes of which is born into jazz and the blues. That is a sinuous link with everything we do aesthetically, from our music to our clothing to our food. It's just this idea that wherever we are, we can survive and make something out of nothing. And I think that's the most glorious part of being black. It certainly is, Michael. Well, Michael, we're going to take a quick break and come back because we're going to get more into how you evolved with your cooking and the role your family played and then talk more about your genealogy. So just a quick break. Awesome.
Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. All of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and it can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Now, you have been listening to Michael Twitty discuss his book, The Cooking Gene, A Journey Through African Culinary History in the Old South. Now, Michael, you shared just a beautiful memory of your late grandmother, where Mm -hmm. she said, and Michael helped, and thank Mm -hmm. God it was good, a good southern meal. Tell us about your grandmother and about the role that your family members played in teaching and encouraging you to cook. Well, um, my grandmother, my mother was like teacher number one. My grandmother was... um, you know, a big part of my experience. You know, I would watch her very intently in the kitchen, and I asked her a lot about food and medicine and culture. You know, uh, my grandmother remembered all the traditional medicines. My grandmother knew all the recipes, knew all those little secrets. And um, they weren't necessarily, she wasn't very um, aged when she passed away, not at all. My grandmother died very young, actually. Um, which I, when I was 13, and she gave me a lot of stories about our family, and they were often passed on to me, you know, while you know shelling peas and um, snapping peas and um, cleaning greens and other activities, peeling sweet potatoes, and um, she introduced me to a whole group of people who I had never. You know, I never would meet, you know, her parents and their parents and their parents and cousins and siblings and just a really rich and beautiful, you know, world of people. And that's one thing I discovered through my work is that, you know, one of the things that actually is very soothing to me and to the people, the elders that I interview, is that when you bring up this population um, in their memories, it's like you're bringing their loved ones back to life. Yeah. And my grandmother talked about her grandmother making sausage, and talked about the things they grew in their garden. And I was just in love with this 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 world she created for me. But it was also a very painful place, because my grandmother grew up during Jim Crow in Birmingham, Alabama. And her Birmingham wasn't the Birmingham right before the Civil Rights Movement, where you had the sizable black working class and uh, middle class population. It was the, the the population back then were people who were refugees from the countryside who were trying to escape, you know, rural Jim Crow. And then came the bombs. That's why they called it Bombingham. Because they were using those bombs long before um, King and Abernathy came on the scene. And they were used to control the community. So one of the things that I talk about in terms of food was that my great-grandfather, Joseph, um, Joseph Peter Todd um, II, 
He was an amazing cook. He cooked with the WPA. Um, he was a cook in the Army, and he served um, honorably. And um, my great-grandfather just made Sunday. He made the Sunday uh, meal, which wasn't really Sunday dinner. It was more like, how did I describe it? It was like this, uh, not even a brunch either. You know what I'm saying, Bernice? It's like they, back in, in the country, they used to have you know these big Sunday meals that lasted all day. Mm-hmm. And they weren't necessarily dinner. It was just like what you did after church. Yes. And my great great mom, yeah, my great great grandmother, his mother in law, did not approve of him because of his color. He was darker, even though his mother was half white, just like they were mostly half white on his on his wife's side. But they didn't accept him because he looked. Um, he was short. He was dark skinned He's very handsome. Short little man. <laughs> and he was very brave. And so my grandmother would talk about how how much love my grand, great-grandparents had for each other. And she talked about how she married him even though her family didn't approve. And my great-great-grandmother would not eat his food because she didn't like his color. And I write about that. I, I struggle with those memories, but I don't want to present a, you know, a picture that's too rosy. I wanted to make sure people understand that our family went through that too. And it's okay to talk about these things and excise these demons from our community, but we have to be real about them. But when it came mm-hmm. to food, you know, not only was he a great cook, but he starved himself once a week so his kids could eat. He would just have water all day long. He wouldn't have any food. And when the Klan came marching down the street trying to scare black folks in the community, my great-great-grandfather would pick up his gun and go out there and Say, look, he told his wife and children, you keep playing, keep going on the porch and play and so on, do whatever you want to do, because I, I got my family's back. And so every time I think about her, I think about him. And I think about, like, the strength that this, you know, five foot six man had and the love he had for his family. And not only that, but he'd bring home peanuts and part for the countryside and parch them. He would make uh, poor sorghum syrup on rare occasions when it actually snowed. My grandmother remembered that. And um, he just really loved his children. And as you hear so often about the denigration of our fathers and husbands. And every time I think about that, I think about my, my great-granddaddy and, and, and what an excellent cook and father he was. And so, Michael, I mean, sharing these memories, uh, you – some kind of way bring in food. I mean, they tell a story, but the food the food is always there. Were these memories shared around food? No, absolutely. The preparation of food, the eating of food, the cooking of food, you know, sharing stories with my my grandmother, but also my other grandparents as well. Um, everything, and that's why in this book, every family story comes with food. Every single one. Um, to to sort of illustrate how deeply integrated our food traditions are into the passing on of our culture and worldview. You know, when my uh, great-great-grandfather Elijah and his brother were emancipated from slavery, they were emancipated the day of the surrender at Appomattox because they were in Appomattox. (laughs) And what made that time of the year unique was the fact that all the trees, the apple trees were in bloom. And if you know Virginia, you know that apple trees in such a part of Virginia were not just a fruit. They were breakfast, they were cider, they were vinegar, they mm-hmm. were um, dessert, they were a snack, they were a part of everyday everyday meals. 
So it was like it was like the food environment and the cultural environment would always go hand in hand. You know, my uh, sixth great grandmother's journey from Africa to America, from Sierra Leone to Charleston. Well, you got to tell the story of rice and how rice was a multi-billion-dollar industry at one point in American history, in our in today's money at least, and that was created by the hands of West African women. So all these family stories and histories are told through food. And my goal was to, you know, have the average African-American reader look at that book and go, wait a minute, my family's from South Carolina, my family's from Virginia, my family's from Maryland, my family's from Louisiana. We have a very similar story. Because I want everybody to sit down at that next family reunion and have a, have a really meaningful narrative to tell, you know. Get your, get, you yeah. know, sure, get your DNA results, get your, pull out your family trees, Bring out those family recipes, but then put all, pull it all together, weave it all together, and see how well it fits into a story that gets you across the Atlantic and into the lives of the people who survived so that you could be telling the story today. Well, you know what, you, you're so right about telling these stories, but in your Southern Discomfort Tours, and that's the kind of name you, you coined it, uh, what communities did you explore, and and what impact that did this tour have on you? Because you mentioned South Carolina and Louisiana and Virginia. Tell us the impact and how that comes out in your book. Well, um, I really went to the heart of, um, you know, where we come from why it matters. Um, I wanted to be I wanted us to have a culinary version of roots. Okay. I wanted us to be able to look at our everyday stories and be able to really put ourselves in the shoes of our ancestors and understand. And we always ask questions like, you know, why do we eat this? Why do we eat that? Why did my grandmother always do that? Why did granddaddy always eat his, eat so and such that way? Um and there's an answer for all of it. We just have to keep digging. And so in this book, I mean, I, I could have written a travelogue about that journey, but it wouldn't have meant as much. I wanted to, you know, it's it's kind of the book is is a big book. Thank God Harper Collins published it. So y'all, y'all listening, you know, I want y'all, I want to make this first plug. We got to make three plugs so people get the message. This is a book for you. You like genealogy, you like food, like culture. This book is for you. And to let Harper Collins know and every other big publisher know that we need more books like it, we have to buy it. We have to support it. We can't just – cultural capital is not just talking about this book, but buying it and saying it's a worth – well, you know, it's a worthy product so that other people writing about similar subjects can get out there. And it's one of the few books that talks to our message of where we come from. And I, and I talk very deeply about the missing pieces that we have to encounter, the brick walls, I want to give a shout-out to Tony Carrier, who was essential in um, the genealogy part of this book. She handled that for me as I dug up some other stuff, and I handed it over to her. And she she put it all in this beautiful mosaic. Um, but, you know, I warn people, when you do black genealogy, you're going to have these frustrating moments. And you're also going to have, you know, outrageous triumphs. They're going to make your heart sing. But they're both they're going to be sometimes be on the same day. You got to be able to deal with that emotional roller coaster of frustration and exhilaration. Um, but the other part of it is that filling in the blanks can involve food. 
and it can involve, you know, looking at where things come from. Um, I'll give you five quick examples. Okay. Black Eyed Peas put on the slave ship with us to make sure that the people who were underweight gained weight. Cooked with palm oil, native native to Africa. Sweet potatoes brought from the Americas, or should I say South America to Africa. But when, they, when they're growing in the South, the people who come from Nigeria and Ghana who are used to eating yams make sweet potatoes the yams, the new yams in their diet. Or what about okra? Okra, which is found from Senegal to Angola. Okra soup is one of the, one of the foods that almost every African nation on the West Coast has, and that becomes gumbo in the New World. And everybody has a different version of it. But I mean, let's get into let's get into something a little bit deeper. Um, how did they come up with this? So I want you to imagine all these black women from different parts of Africa forced to kind of make out and language between them, sort of put it based in the English they're learning, but with words in their own languages, and they're trying to figure out how do they recreate the taste of Africa to keep a connection with their homeland. And they find a way to live in peace with each other. You know, it's like throwing, you know, Swedes and Greeks and Russians and Spanish people and Polish people all in the same room. And saying, okay, be white together. <laughs> Which is kind of what happened on their end, right? You know, 100 mm-hmm. years later. <laughs> but for us, it was an immediate sort of like, okay, you're all in the same boat. How do we make this work? And it's through the food that you actually see the machinations, the workings of how African-American civilization was created. We can see the moment when all these women from Angola and Senegal and Ghana are sitting around on a plantation in the Chesapeake going, you ate that? Yeah, we ate that. We ate that too. How'd y'all make it? Put some tomatoes in it, some onions, some hot peppers. We did that same thing. Okay, let's do it. Let's make us some soup. Let's talk about home. Let's talk about how we're going to survive this. What do we pass on to our children? So we don't often think about those moments when our culture was passed on or how it was passed on. But when you think about the food, you can immediately see in your mind's eye how we became African Americans and why we should be so proud, so enormously proud of our ancestors for giving us a heritage that is unmistakable in all the families of planet Earth. And, and you know what, this goes back to, to one of your, your own statements you know, about your entire life has been about memory, where you're talking about all of these different Africans coming from different places and coming together and say, well, let's do it this way, and, oh, let's, let's, let's add this, and let's add that. And then they came up with this wonderful cuisine that we love today. And but that white people can't people live without. even think about it? You know, how many people <laughs> even give thought? Because you know what? You know where I'm from. I'm from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. I read your chapter. I, I saw what you said about <laughs> New Orleans, <laughs> about Shehelines, and, and you talked about uh, Dookie Chase and Mrs. Chase. Oh, yes. <laughs> but, you know, we pride ourselves in New Orleans on our food. That's right. And it comes from this mixture of people. And, you know, one thing that got me about going to Louisiana during that first Southern Discomfort Tour was how people talk about Cajun food. And I was like, wait a minute, hold up. 
So they had an image in one of the museums of a, a Cajun woman pounding rice. And I'm like, wait a minute, ain't no rice in Nova Scotia. Ain't no rice in northern France. And then I was like looking at the mortar and pestle. I'm like, that's a mortar and pestle right out of Senegal. And why wouldn't it be? Because Senegalese people were the, the people who were the first major group of Africans brought by the French to Louisiana, followed by the people from Benin. And then later on, people from Congo and Haiti, who were also a mixture of cultures, growing rice there, eating rice and beans. So all these things come together, and it's just like, whoa, you know. Um, it's so easy to see the roots and the routes of our people. But, you know, I interjected yeah. really quickly, white people love this food too. And white people say to me, oh, I ate that too. So does that mean I'm black? And I said, actually, maybe. It means that you're a participant in African civilization, whether you like it or not. Or better yet, African civilization is participating in you. Mm-hmm. And we're not the only ones who got assimilated and culture, acculturated in this arrangement. In fact, y'all blacker than y'all know. <laughs> and that's not a well, bad thing. That's a thing to celebrate no, because it made you thing. better. It gave you some yeah. flavor. <laughs> well, we have a comment coming out of the chat, and and first of all, you mentioned you mentioned the book, and and that more books like your book should be written. And there's a comment stating that everybody should at least go to the libraries and encourage encourage the librarians to to purchase this book for the library. I mean, we can we can do that to make sure that people understand the value of the cooking gene. But yes. there's a comment coming out from Angela Walton, Raji. And she yes. says, funny how the love of hot sauce and Tabasco reflects the West African tradition of pepper, yet no companies that manufacture hot sauce are owned and managed by African Americans. Have right. some of our traditions been hijacked? and now called Southern? Oh, yeah. But I also think that not just Southern, but American, period. But American, period. Um, it's it's just how it works. It's just how it works. And this is a call to arms. I don't want people to think this is a book just about the past or my family memories. Um, there is a chapter in there about growing food and nutrition and health and how black Americans are taking this power back. They are making urban farms bloom. They are creating co-ops, and they are becoming nutritionists and monitoring our health and talking about how the basic vegetarian and fish-based and and mild-protein diet with our spices and our herbs is really a healthy diet. Um, There's a way to make our traditional food in balance. It doesn't, you know, affect the health. Um, but you gotta you got to know a lot of stuff to do that. You have to have a wider conversation as a culture. But I think to Angela's question, um, and hi, Angela, we love you, um, is that the bottom line is if we know our history and we know about our heirlooms and this is a, this is a national conversation as a people, then we can begin to say, okay, y'all can do what you need to do on your side of the river. But here we are. We're going to take back our heirlooms. We're going to make a business out of it. We're going to support each other and buy from each other. And we're going to make it a priority to go back to cooperative economics. We're going to make it a priority to go back to supporting our businesses. 
You know, one of the things that I talk about in that chapter is how I saw a dollar stay within the black community for the first time and trade hands, black hands, black hands. And that's not a racial thing. It's a cultural, ethnicity, it's an ethnic power thing because our mm-hmm. ability to keep money in our community and empower and enrich each other is essential to our ability to survive in, you know, modern the modern economy. So, you know, knowing your culture and being aware of it isn't just about a, it's not a hobby, it's not trivia. It is an essential part of having um real ownership over your history and your legacy so that you can empower yourself with it. But whether that has a, whether it has a financial value or not, it's just a way of it's a way of keeping that wealth, that cultural wealth in our world. Well, not only that, you have we have several people in the chat room just kind of going along and agreeing with you that we we need to number one consider growing our own, but also look at keeping our wealth within within the community. Yes. Now you 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 know you talk about the need for more books like this. Mhm. And you know there's a a, a group called uh, it's the Genealogist Writing Room. And people are encouraged to tell their story. So thinking of you and and writing the the cooking gene, tell us about your process. Your process uh, for writing this book. And and how did you go about it, and how long did it take you to get it together? So years, but um, from the time, I mean, I had an agent um, not long after, during the time period that Paula, the Paula Dean thing happened. By 2014, I had a contract. Um, I was going to take two years, ended up being two and a half years, the day the publication got pushed back about six months, and then now we're here in 2017. Um, there were some days I would go to a coffee shop and go to uh, Dunkin' Donuts. I would write from 4 o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night. I would not leave. Oh, wow. And some days I couldn't write anything. I'd write maybe a paragraph and be very frustrated. And yeah. some days I'd write the whole day. Um, get up, go to the bathroom, go get a little snack, go get some some. Drink, you know, I don't know how many unsweetened iced teas with lemon, and get back to work. And then sometimes I wouldn't write for a week or two, and then I'd have I'd be so pained I'd have to write. You know, um, genealogy writing about genealogy, writing a book like this is very hard because, as you know, with genealogy, things can change in an instant, especially because we have digital stuff now. It's not just yeah. about us going to the archive. Somebody might have some information. So, for example, um, in my own family story, I'd meet a new cousin, and they would tell me new information, and I just couldn't help but put it in the book. I'm still getting information from people. It's really hard. Excuse me. It's really hard because it's new stuff, and it's great stuff, but it didn't make it into the book. You know, I just got to, you know, especially my African DNA matches. I've been really fantastic part of my journey. So are you are you now thinking about book number two? Well, I'm thinking about revising this one to reflect that information. Um oh, okay. I think this is I think this is a done deal. 
And I think that my trips to Africa that I'm, I went to Senegal, and thank you for everybody who supported me in that. I mean, that money went to a good cause. It got me finally to the continent, and I'm going back to the continent in, um, next month in Nigeria. But um, these trips that I'm taking are going to be grandfathered into a whole new ending to the book. I don't, you know, this. I don't. I don't know if it's really worth. You know, this book is really in depth. It's every single detail, every single moment. Um, I'm not a West African. I'm an African American. I don't. I, yeah. I feel like to write that book with the African travels being the separate book, I would have to talk about a whole bunch of issues that I don't really know about because I'm not from there. Whereas mm-hmm. this book, I can write about what happened when I finally got to go to the continent and see all the things that I've been writing about, thinking about and dreaming of and fulfilling that. I mean, I really wanted to do it the first time. But, you know, um, being an author doesn't mean you've made it. And I really wanted to be able to say to my readers, I got to Senegal, hey, I got to Nigeria, hey, I got to Ghana. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately that happened after the book was a done deal. So I think okay. when, when the book is revised, I will then include that into my writing. Now, there's a question, and it, it relates to your writing, since you, you had a contract before your completion. Did the agent pressure you to add a lot more chapters to your book? No. They, you know, the ma- the major thing is get it done. And, okay. Um, um, but I will say this. They pressure you to hurry up. Everybody does. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that can be very, you know, you got to – you got to come into it, I've learned, with as much material as possible. You really have to have, you know, have it loaded and ready to go. It's better to write and have rough drafts to to, to go over and, you know, have a basic framework done and to, to strictly create. Don't If you're going to write a book like this, don't wait to write it. Start scribbling, right. start outlining, start fighting start with outlined. yourself. Yes. All of yes. it. Outline it, do it all. So that when you so when those those pressure dates come up, you don't mm-hmm. feel you know, overwhelmed. Well, we have a caller on the line and it's area code six four six. You have a question or a comment? Hi, this is Teresa Vega. Hi, Michael. Hi. Um, hi, hi. Hey, sweetie. I I just want to say um, I I had the pleasure and the opportunity of meeting Michael when he did his book signing here in Manhattan. I've also had the pleasure of following him on his journey, and I've read many genealogy books. This is one of my favorite because of its wide breadth. It's not only his his own personal story or his family history. It's about putting um, black Southern cooks back on the map because they were thrown off. So in his own way, he's been able to speak truth to power. Um, and, and one of the things that I love about it is you truly see how African Americans are a diasporic group. Mm-hmm. Um, we are so much more diverse than most people know. And to see him weave all these diverse histories into just one, a larger narrative that actually smacks at what it is to be American is awesome. So that's all I wanted to say. Go buy the book. I'm a fan. I love you, Michael, and I <laughs> wish you the best. Uh, igualmente. 
Thank you so much for calling in, Teresa. Uh, we have another caller, area code 813. You're live. Hi, Bernice. Hi, Michael. It's Tony Carrier calling. Hi. Hi, Hi. Michael. <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'm, down, I'm down with the flu, but I was not going to miss calling in to congratulate you on the publication of this oh, wonderful thank book. You. It's everything I thought it would be, and um, it's a tremendous book, and it has so much to teach all of us. So I just wanted to call and say congratulations, and I'll catch the replay when I'm well. <laughs> okay, well, and without you, I, well, I couldn't have never done it. Bless you. Well, enjoy. I'm enjoying okay. a little bit of the show I've heard, and uh, take care. Thank you. Okay, and we have people saying they love you, Tony, and oh, to be well. Neat. Thank okay. you so much. <laughs> okay, All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. We have another caller uh, online, and that's area code 270. You have a question or a comment? Hi, Bernice and Michael. It's me, True. Hi. All the family calling tonight. I love it. Yes. I just, I'm so proud of you, and I just wanted to say thank you for writing this. You brought our whole history with the DNA and the food, and you just came full circle for me. And I'm still reading it, and I just don't even want it to stop, but I just wanted to say congratulations. We love you, and we just thank you. We thank you for doing this. So. Well, thank you. Well, thank you for calling in, True. Thank you. (laughs) Michael, I think you have a fan club here. Oh, I'm so delighted. This is my family. Yes, that's your family. Well, Michael, we did have a question as back to the whole process of writing, and the question is how did you find an agent? Oh, um, normally you have to hunt them down. But because the Paula Dean letter went viral, I was now attracted to people who were looking for a new voice. That's real. That's a really easy way to find one. Um, <laughs> you know. Okay. <laughs> but you know, I had to build up an audience. You know, and right. building up an audience yes. meant being on your program. It meant blogging. It meant twittering. It meant Facebook. It meant this. It meant that. So you really have to be in a position where as many people as possible know that you're out there. The traditional way is you kind of audition for them. You find mm-hmm. an agent who does books the way you want to do them, and you audition for them. And one of the ways that you can find an agent, it's a really good tip that I've learned, was um, the books that you really love, learn about a subject you want to write on. Look who they think as their agent. And then go <laughs> find that agent. Write them a query letter. Say, do you want a client, new client? This is what I got. This is what I'm writing. This is what I'm doing. And they may accept you. They may tell you to go back to the drawing board and do some more work or do whatever or build an audience. But the bottom line is you build a relationship with them. And I was very lucky and very fortunate. But it, but it came after many, many years of struggle. Um, and it's still a struggle to be a black author. It's still a struggle to be an author of color and to have to deal with people thinking that, oh, this is so niche. And this is why it's so important for us to, you know, buy into projects like this. And not because it's just because it's me. I mean, I, one of the things I love, Bernice, when I'm on the road, and you know I'm on the road quite often, yeah. is when I go to that black bookstore or that black restaurant, and they say, no, 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 baby, I got it. And I said, no, you don't. 
I said, it is my pleasure to put money into your hands. It is my pleasure right. to put money into black and brown hands. Mm-hmm. And to say, no, no, I, it's, it's glorious to thank you, Lord, that I have the blessing to be able to support a business and support our children and our families and our communities. Because that's what it's all about. So, yeah, I, I think it, it's, it's really important to sort of keep that in mind. And, you, you know, in order to be that blessing, you've got to be a blessing to other people. 24-7. Yes. Yes, well said. Well, Michael, we have uh, some more comments coming out. First of all, uh, this is Angela again, and she says, you will have to get to Oklahoma to explore how Oklahoma freedmen adopted their culture into the five tribes in which they were enslaved. Yeah. And, of course, you know, like Teresa said, there's like a this is a really broad book. And I was able to touch on some of that, but that's a whole that's a whole book by itself. I mean, yes, the Native it American and African culinary interaction is much deeper than people realize, and all, and everything else too. And because of those very complex relationships, being freedmen, being freedom seekers, which is very different, mm-hmm. being enslaved people, being enslaved together, you know, all that stuff. I mean, that's what, and migration. I talk about that a lot in the book, so people will re- recognize these things in their family histories and go, yeah, we had that story, we talked about that, and then they'll pick up on it, and that's what I want them to do. I want them to go into their bibliography, Bernice, and just go run wild. Yes, I want everybody I to tell their story. You're right, oh, I love you're it. right. Okay, so you have people in the chat, and they want to know, okay, is there a preset schedule of your book tours? <laughs> no, because <laughs> I don't really have one. <laughs> and it's not. I don't really have a. I don't really have a book tour. Um, it's you know they're they're uh, they're nudging me to do something I really should do, which is put up the dates that I do have. Um, a real deal book tour is a funded experience. I'm just gonna make it clear for everybody. My stuff ain't funded. So it's <laughs> it's piecemeal. It's people who are bringing me places, or it's you know institutions that are you know can give me a little bit of money so I can get there and get back. Um, and of course, I sell books. I don't bring them with me. The, the, the publisher, you know, they order from the publisher, and then I, you know, I um, sign and sell, and you know, whatever doesn't get sold, it gets sent back, and that's how it works. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to try to do that because I know I'm going to Boston soon, Chicago soon. Um, get it while it's hot. Chicago's going to be off the chain. Uh, the, the Chicago Humanities Festival. Um, and then I'm going to be doing some more appearances as the book goes on. Um, but, you know, guys, like that Amazon up tonight. Like that Barnes & Noble up tonight you know, online. Um, or if you rather, go to your independent bookstore, especially a black independent bookstore, and order this book. But, you know, you know I'm the only black book, the only book by person of color on um, an Amazon's uh, gastronomy writing or food writing list. Out of the hundred, mm-hmm. I'm the only book by personal color. Think about that. I want to be number one on that list. I want people to know and understand our history and our culture is as valid as anybody else's. And it's popular. It's important. We, we, we want more of it. Because I want younger um, writers of color, no matter what background they come from, um, five, ten years from now, to be like, I want to be next Michael Twitty, and guess what? I'm not only next Michael Twitty, I'm me. I'm doing my yes. thing. I'm sharing my mm-hmm. culture. 
We need we need Puerto Rican books. We need Brazilian books. We need Haitian books. We need Ghanaian and Guinean and Nigerian and Black British and Black Netherlands. And we need Black Japanese books. We need to tell the entire story of our people at home in the diaspora because we need that entire rainbow to be complete. That's right. Well, Michael, we have just two two more questions. Sure. Uh, the first is uh, about Colonial Williamsburg, mm-hmm. and tell us about the work at um, interpreting history in Colonial Williamsburg, and when are you there? Okay. I'm, I'm actually calling from Williamsburg right now. I'm here this weekend. I'm back in late November, and I end my residency in December, but we're talking about ways to have me around in the next two years, um, especially in 2019 which, as you know, will be the 400th anniversary of the Jamestown Landing. So this mm-hmm. whole area, Hampton Roads and beyond, will be doing different things to mark the anniversary of the arrival of Africans in British North America um, and the beginning of that culture. Um, I, I create recipes for the restaurants here. I do demonstrations. Um, <laughs> I hosted the donor dinner, the big donor dinner in, in September, uh, I write, I've written articles for Colonial Williamsburg's uh, Trend and Traditions magazine and um, demons have demonstrated uh, farming, gardening techniques and um, educating kids and educating fellow interpreters <laughs> and working with interpreters who have different skill sets, learning from them. I think it's really important people understand the residency isn't just me teaching, it's me being taught and me learning from the wisdom of my peers. <laughs> Um, and having the humility to know that, you know, you are not an island, that you, we need each, each other's knowledge to survive. And so it's been a really wonderful experience thus far. Well, it sounds like it's been a wonderful experience. And the, the, the final question is, why did you select the recipes you shared throughout your book? Um, half of them were recipes that I already, like, uh, shared in my blog or through media. And okay. the other part was I just wanted them to kind of sort of have a loose um, attachment to the subject matter at hand. I want people to know something. The Cooking Gene isn't a cookbook. Um, it is a it is a book with recipes. Uh, anyone who knows me on social media knows that I do kind of do a lot of um, crowdsourcing for should I, should I, shouldn't I? And for this book, I asked, should I have recipes? And everybody said, yeah, you have recipes. Um, but at the risk, I didn't want to turn it into a cookbook because a cookbook is a whole other ball game. And um, but I did want, you know, most food narratives, most food memoirs have recipes, you know, sprinkled throughout them. So I guess I let people have to say, here you go, have some food, have some recipes. Oh, okay. So, so sort uh-huh. of you know spice up the mix. But the bottom line okay. is, I wanted to make sure that people understood that this is a story about our people and our ancestors, and the recipes are just—they're um, the dust, but we are the—we are the—we're the—we're the cornerstone. Okay. So, Michael, any parting words before we close out tonight? Absolutely. I'm going to say I said I'm going to do three plugs, and I meant it. Um, okay. Light that Amazon up. Get this book. Go to African Area. Go to the, like the Cooking Gene on Facebook. The Cooking Gene has its own Facebook page. Go to Michael W. Twitty on Facebook. Like that page. Um, buy this book for Kwanzaa. Buy this book for Hanukkah. Buy this book for Christmas. 
buy it as a gift. Anyone who's a, who's a genealogist who's African American um, will want and love this book because I wrote it for you. I wrote it with you in mind. I also wrote it for the people who love and are interested in African American genealogy and culture. No matter what phenotype, what color you are, how tall, how short, whatever you may be, this book is written for you with love. And it's written to bring us all together to celebrate a culture and a tradition that will go on as long as the stars push on. All right, Michael. Well, Michael Twitty, thank you so much for sharing thank your you. book with all of us tonight and for writing your book for us. Thank and you, because we needed remember, it. remember, everyone, oh, yes, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and AfroGenius Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nicosul Smith. And by the way, Michael, I hope that you will one day join Black Progen Live so that we could see you and talk to you. All right. Thank now. you so much, everyone, for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Bennett, and co-host, Patricia Glover-Howard. Good night, everyone. Good night, Michael. Good night. <laughs>